As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, an Incredibly important conversation. Gregory Peters joins us. He's co-chief investment officer at PGM Fixed Income, but someone with decades of perspective from Morgan Stanley to PGM of the ups and downs of the golden age of fixed income. Greg, thank you uh, for joining. As a blended idea, we're down 12% on price, on bonds. You write of a golden age and saying it's over. Can we get a Hail Mary for the bond market like we did from 47, 48? out to the Eisenhower disinflation four and five years later, where it's big price up, yield down. So I still think we have a little ways to go on this one, honestly, as there's all this talk around uh, peak inflation and peak hawkishness. And I think those two terms are being conflated in here. Uh, as you can have this peak inflation uh, and then not go peak hawkishness. And what I mean by that is that there's all this sensitivity in the market where inflation is going to ultimately show signs of coming down. And that means the bull market begins for bonds, which means the Fed doesn't have to tighten as much. What I think is missing there is the persistent nature of inflation that might actually cause the Fed to actually hike even more than anticipated. Greg, let's dig into that a little bit. In other words, you think that people are underestimating how sticky this inflation is and how committed uh, the Fed really is to not getting the inflation rate down to 3%, as Adam Posen says, but down to 2% in short order. Yeah, so I'm not sure of where inflation will land ultimately. I think that's the challenge. That's the difficulty. But I'm pretty sure that the Fed is extremely focused on inflation. And I think that's what investors have missed this entire period, which this is a Volcker-esque type of Fed where they are clearly focused on getting inflation down and they are not going to throw away 40 years of credibility, which we know actually matters a lot over the medium to long term. They're not going to throw that credibility away just because, uh, um, you know, the markets are telling them to. So, Greg, just to take that a step further, does that mean this Fed won't tolerate an easing of financial conditions? anytime soon. And what does that mean for how you put money to work? Well, so I think somewhat perversely, this, the financial condition picture has been much stronger than I think uh, the Fed uh, anticipated. So, uh, so um, I think financial conditions have to worsen. I think that's the natural uh, path here. 
yes, you've had really big moves thus far. I understand that there's more value in the market today than there was, you know, six months ago. Absolutely. But for example, we just had this internal poll that we conducted with you know, over 300 of our investment professionals and 76% of those folks believe that uh, we'll have a hard landing. And in Europe, uh, it's almost 90% believe there's a hard landing. So the point being that there's still a lot of risk out there um, uh, on this hard landing camp. I just want to pick up on that line, Greg. Financial conditions have to worsen. Can you give me an idea of what that would look like and where to look for it? Well, so I think it's the natural uh, items of stocks. I, uh, I do believe risk assets have to cheapen up more. I know the focus on earnings, that should be the focus. Uh, but we're coming off this margin type of environment, all this operating leverage embedded in these capital structures, uh, that cuts both ways. So if you actually see a, a slowdown in revenues, uh, that's going to have you know, the opposite benefit that we saw coming out of the uh, pandemic. So I worry about risk assets, uh, both equities uh, and credit in here. I think there's more room to go. With such a high probability, I think at least, a high probability of a hard landing, I'm not convinced we're priced for that um, in a scenario-based way. So how much cash are you carrying at the moment, Greg? Just give me a picture of what you've been doing, what your picture looks like going into the end of this year. Yeah, so for us, it's not so much about cash. We have increased our cash levels on the margin. Uh, it's more around the liquidity in the market, which is something that should be focused on as well. So you're seeing liquidity and fixed income, which is always fraught, uh, but you know, much more kind of volatile uh, liquidity picture. So we're getting more defensive. We have been getting more defensive. Uh, we have taken our like long-duration investment-grade corporates down where you continue to move our high yield exposure down. We've been decidedly kind of muted and underweight on emerging markets. And we're, you know, quote unquote, uh, hiding out in uh, a short duration spread product uh, and, uh, and structure products. But I think the, the ultimate trade here, the sequencing of the trade is long duration before your long risk assets. Uh, uh, and so the volatility makes it really difficult to pick your points. But to me, uh, the, the duration trade is going to be uh, the best trade here. Greg, fascinating stuff, as always, buddy. Thanks for being with us. Greg Peters there of PGM Fixed Income. Right on. This is an important conversation. She's head of equities, capital market advisory at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Alicia Levine, always on the edge of enthusiasm. And I'm sorry, Alicia, buried in your note is the outlier what if, which is a multiple for the market out of another time and place. Can you actually multiple a gloom 12 times multiple on the market? Uh, that would be our extreme left tail risk, but it is out there as a very low risk scenario when it goes something like this. And it's similar to the conversation you've been having this morning, which is that, you know, earnings for the second quarter are expected to be up about four and a half percent. But for the second half of the year, earnings are still up 
on expectations, 10.5% the second half, which I think is probably not believable. We expect margins must come down here. And the way that stimulus, you know, increased the revenue side, it also increased the, the operating margin side. We're at record, record margins. That has to come down. So as earnings come down, the multiple will start looking higher if the market just stays where it is. And in a recessionary scenario, you could be down on earnings 10 to 30%. And with that, the multiple goes wow. with it. So I would say an average recession multiple is 14 times. Whatever those new earnings are, expect it to come down 7 to 10% from here. And then you put a, a, the, the average recession 14 times, you're about 3,400, about. As, as a first stop before we can think about moving higher here. So we're in the chart. I think the rally in the last week or so is an expectation that that PCE data that we're getting on Thursday is going to show some peak inflation. But once we've rallied six or seven or even 10 percent into it, then where do you go, even if it is slightly peaky? Alicia, that scenario you just painted, is that just a bearish scenario or is that your base case? That is not our base case. That is a that is that is a bearish scenario. But you have to start thinking about, well, if the worst case happens, where does it go? We actually think there's a 50-50 chance uh, of recession in the next 12 months. So there's that bumpy that bumpy landing, not really a soft one, but a bumpy landing about 50% recession on the other side of that. But we do think the recession will be mild, meaning the job market is so strong and activity is pretty strong in the economy. We don't think we'll see anything deeper. The wild card, of course, is if there's some kind of contagion in financial markets. So if we get if we get a market dislocation event, of course, that could make it worse. But right now we're seeing this as a slowdown, an earnings slowdown, a mild recession, and then something we can build out of here. But I agree with your previous guests that that tightening financial conditions is part of the Fed's solution to the inflation problem, which means, of course, the market will go lower as part of the plan. So which equities do you see as probably bearing the brunt of the pain? And I'm thinking in particular of Goldman's call on retailers that are facing perhaps extreme margin pressure in the face of uh, inventories and other factors that are much more volatile. Look, on the consumption side, on the consumer side, it's all about the inventory to sales ratio. If you think sales are moving lower, and we know the inventory levels are up 30 to 50%. So the margins are going to come down pretty quickly and it'll hit earnings pretty quickly. So I would say that's pretty much ground zero to for where we see earnings revisions right here on that discretionary side. The stocks are acting like it. If you look at the staples versus uh, versus uh, discretionary, uh, you can see the vast outperformance on the staple side. So that's where you should see the, the, the multiple compression and the earnings compression first. And you'll see it in the second quarter earnings as well. Alicia, have we already reached uh, the point at which it's time to start selling out of the energy positions? The idea that we've already seen that wager kind of roll over and now people are more worried about recession and lack of demand. And so too, uh, will the stocks reflect that? So that's a great question. I mean, it's something we have to think about. We are bullish on energy stocks with WTI staying above 95. So on a technical level, over 95, 
means the energy stocks should probably still work here. We do think there's a structural issue. There's some cyclical component in the in the movement on the energy sector, but it's more structural. And as you've pointed out, energy's managed to move this high with China, with one third of Chinese locked down. So to the extent that there's any, any demand from China coming out of a COVID lockdown situation, it should help support energy prices and therefore the stocks. You're probably not gonna get that parabolic move. You know, we always talk about how parabolas don't make great technical charts, but we think it's too early to sell out here. Alicia Levine of BNY Mellon. Alicia, thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, an important conversation and a brief for all of Bloomberg surveillance by James Stravitas to say he is vice chairman of global affairs at Carlisle Group barely touches upon his public service to the United States Navy and America. The effort to risk it all is out. Each chapter important on admirals that had courage. Admiral Stravitas, thank you so much for joining us this morning. The Turkey-Sweden relationship is extraordinary. It goes back to 1730, the Great Northern War was not the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Montreal Canadiens. It was Sweden and Turkey against Russia. And once again, they're trying to recalibrate that relation. What will be the price to get Mr. Erdogan to allow Sweden and neighboring Finland to be part of NATO? Well, first and foremost, um, this is a win for NATO, a huge one to bring those two high-tech militaries, very capable. They deployed troops under my command to Afghanistan. I know these militaries well. They'll be very welcome and very capable in NATO. In terms of the price, what we're seeing is President Erdogan uh, negotiating, if you will. He wants to squeeze two principal concessions out. He wants more attention paid to the uh, Kurdish issues. He feels there's uh, some level of Kurdish activity in Sweden in particular. He wants a cap placed on that. And then secondly, at a larger scale, Tom, he wants uh, more high-tech military capability in the hands of the Turks. Um, export controls lifted on some right. of the systems. Gets very technical very quickly. But I think, bottom line, these are both points that can be negotiated. I think we will see right. Sweden and Finland in the alliance by the fall. The Bosphorus is 19 miles. Maybe it's two or three miles wide at the absolute maximum. When you see it, folks, it's shockingly uh, narrow. How does a submarine go up that canal? <laughs> uh, very carefully. And uh, 
uh, on the surface would be the two answers. And um, at the end of the day, Turkey's control over that very narrow strait is an important part of the functionality of NATO in the Black Sea. And Tom, as you know, and we were just talking about, getting grain out of Odessa in Ukraine is going to be critical to global food security. We're going to have to open that either uh, with negotiations with Russia, which is blockading it, or put some level of uh, escort system in place, much like we did with oil tankers in the 1980s. So the Bosphorus will be uh, more of a conversation, I think, in the weeks and months to come. And Admiral Stavridis, this is all about NATO's position versus Russia, once thought as not necessarily an adversary, but that's obviously changing. I know my co-hosts think of me as a broken record when it comes to this NATO meeting, because I'm completely focused on what they talk about with China. This idea of potentially labeling China a systemic challenge. How big of a shift is this how much muscle is there behind? Huge shift in the sense that if you go back to the previous strategic concept, came out in 2010 when I was Supreme Allied Commander, and China didn't appear, cyber barely appeared. Russia was postured at that point as a potential uh, nation that NATO could work with. That's all changed, and uh, Russia will be the top headline threat um, China is being categorized as, as you said, a systemic challenge, um, but significantly going to be four observer nations from the Pacific at that Madrid summit. That would be Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. Um, that is very significant to see them coming to Madrid. It speaks to NATO's concerns about China. Well, uh, you know, when you talk about Russia being the number one threat, they're perceived as the aggressor. So it's a little bit less risky to do so. So considering that the conflict is already very much uh, in full force, how much are we looking at an aggressive position versus China poking the bear in a way that's going to prompt some sort of response versus just getting together the allies with some sort of plan? How big is the distinction? Um, the distinction is enormous at this point, and I'd categorize it, Lisa, as with Russia, it's in many ways, it's tactical. It's very focused on the Ukraine situation. We're going to get to an outcome there. Um, and I think NATO is, is standing together very strongly. That's why the updraft you just heard from the secretary general from 40,000 in the ready force to 300,000. That's about Russia. We're not going to have land forces engaged with China at any point. With China, it's a strategic set of challenges, including territoriality in the South China Sea, I think will be a significant one for NATO. Um, but at the end of the day, the philosophy with China is going to be confront China where you must. South China Sea, human rights, but cooperate where you can. So it's a very different feel between the two, uh, the two nations of Russia and China. Always wonderful to hear from you, sir, as always. That was James DeFridis there of the Carlyle Group. I think institutions need to be very prudent, focusing on liquidity, dry powder. It's a time to protect capital, not to shoot the lights out to get some great return. Right now we're in, um, you know, I do think we're going into a recession and that's a totally different playbook. Paula Valente, she is the giant of Bowdoin. 
up in Maine, and she has moved to Rockefeller University as chief investment officer after early years at Yale University under the late, great Mr. Swenson. David Rubenstein in conversation with Paula Valent. This is a really, really important conversation for endowment and institutional at Wall Street. David, this is a woman with a track record second to none in investment management. Trace the trail from Yale to the stunning brilliance at Bowdoin and now to the challenges of Rockefeller University. Well, Paula was trained as an art uh, conservator, and she basically was in art conservation. She decided to go to Yale uh, Business School, Yale School of Management. And while there, she did an internship for David Swenson, who was running the Yale Endowment. She uh, was really liked by him. She helped write his um, outstanding book on portfolio management. And then she got a job at Bowdoin, where she managed the endowment. And at Bowdoin, the last uh, 10 years there, she outperformed the Ivy League in every single um, category in terms of return of every other Ivy League manager, including David Swenson. Um, and she did a spectacular job in the 20 years she, she was at, at, at Bowdoin. And on Bowdoin, her chief, uh, uh, the chairman of her investment committee was Stan Druckenmiller. So she's been a kind of a protege of both David Swenson mm-hmm. and Stan Druckenmiller. What's interesting here, David, is the backdrop is the worst bond market that you and I have ever seen. It's been one of my missions of the last 90 days to go, hello, everyone, down 12%, maybe down 18%. How do people like her and how is she at Rockefeller University adapting to yield up price down? Well, she's very cautious. Her view is we're probably heading into a recession and her view is you don't try to... uh, uh, knock out the lights by going for super returns and, and getting the high-flying tech uh, kind of companies. That's not what she does. She's protecting her downside, and I think she's a very cautious investor. Remember, over the last 10 years, she outperformed every single Ivy League uh, endowment. And last year alone, before she left Bowdoin, she had an, an internal rate of return of over 50% for, for the last year she was managing Bowdoin's endowment. So uh, she's quite impressive, and uh, Rockefeller has done very well to get her to be the chief investment officer. David, one of the big uh, distinctions for endowments where people have been seeing outperformance has been their use of private markets, their use of alternative capital. How has she folded that into the call of a traditional 60-40 to get that kind of internal rate of return? Well, of course, the, the Swenson approach or the so-called portfolio approach is to use a lot of uh, private investments, and she did that as well. Uh, the trick she had was that getting into these best funds because Bowdoin wasn't as famous as some other organizations or universities, and so she had to talk her way into some of the best funds. Inevitably, uh, the marks will come down for some of the uh, venture funds, and probably, therefore, uh, she and some of the other Ivy League endowments won't have the, as good a return uh, this year as they had last year. On the other hand, uh, her returns are so good, it's not likely to go down all that much, uh, in my view. How much is she actively trading into a time of such uncertainty versus having a long-term view post-recession that she sees right. and sort of uh, sticking to her guns on it? Um, my view is that she doesn't think she should try to uh, knock out the lights by going for uh, things at the absolute bottom of the market. She's very cautious, conserving some cash. Um, she's in some very good funds now, but now she's remaking the Rockefeller portfolio because she inherited it uh, from somebody else, but who was very good as well. But she's remaking the portfolio into something that uh, is more comfortable for her. Tell us about Rockefeller University. This is not the normal school. I think of David Baltimore and my youth and right. what he did with mRNA and virology onto the miracle of what Pfizer and Moderna uh, did as well. 
It's not I'm, Bowden, is it? No. It's not Duke, is it? They no. don't have a basketball team, do they? <laughs> I don't think Rockefeller has a basketball team that I know of, but uh, it's in New York City on the east side. It basically is an organization that does medical research and, and health-related research. research. Right. Yeah. And it's a high, uh, highly intensive place. A lot of Nobel Prize winners have been there and are there. Um, it's a highly specialized organization, and it depends to some extent on its endowment because uh, the Rockefeller family is not now putting in a lot of more money. So the endowment's very important to that organization. Mm. David, given the fact that you work in the private markets and you talk to these investors all the time, perhaps uh, you know, big and small, how much do you get the sense that they are following in the same kind of path uh, as, as what we heard uh, just now? Well, everyone is recognizing that the market is down, it, whether it's a bear market, a recession, or whatever you want to call it. It's obviously down from, from the peaks, and people are debating how much longer it's going to be down before it goes back up. People who are very cautious are basically not trying to, to uh, uh, set records right now. They're kind of seeing where the market's going. But there are some people who see there are great values in the market, and the so-called value investors are now seeing that we're touching near the bottom in their view, and they're going back into the market. So I don't really think the market is likely to go down that much further from where we are. And I think the, the, there's enough cash on the sidelines to go back into the market and keep the prices of some of these stocks uh, at reasonable levels. But we're, we're a long way away from being out of the woods, in my view. Uh, David Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, this is an important conversation, critical for anyone within institutional Wall Street and the endowment world. Paula Valent, Bloomberg Wealth. Uh, look for that. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.